Yes, thank you, Patricia, for that introduction, and uh, thank you for being here. I'm very happy to share with you some insights into this uh, new project. I'll try to uh, make it as interesting as possible for everyone, so also touching on some general international law issues in relation to the interpretation of treaties uh, in light of subsequent practice. That's why we highlighted in this, uh, in this um, title 60 years of, of practice, of course. How do you interpret a treaty that was written 60 years ago in another era in the light of today's armed conflicts? Um, and then I'll also go into some uh, details of some particular provisions, but not too much because we have very little time. I'll just give you a, a flavor to whet your appetite uh, in relation to common articles 1, 2, and 3 of the first Geneva Convention, which are, of course, common, uh, as I just said, to the four conventions. So uh, without further ado, but I first want to just situate where I'm coming from because some of you may not know very well uh, the ICRC and, and why I'm speaking here about this subject of international humanitarian law or law of armed conflict. So the ICRC is, is based in Geneva, as you may know, and it's a private organization on the Swiss law, but it's part also of the International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement. And I'll show you that in a minute also because I often get questions on this. It's a neutral, impartial, and independent organization, and it has uh, quite a lot of staff around the world working in situations of armed conflict and also other situations of violence falling below the threshold of armed conflict. It's a private organization, but it has received uh, in treaties and also in the statutes of this movement uh, a mandate for the protection and assistance of victims of armed conflict, and also a mandate to work for the promotion of IHL and even the development and the faithful application of IHL. So if you look at the statutes of the movement, you'll find all this language giving the ICRC a particular role in this area of international law, which is quite uh, specific, uh, specific, sui generis, if you like, because it's a private organization. At the same time, it has received this mandate uh, in treaties. And of course, because we work for the promotion, clarification of international humanitarian law, that's, that's why I'm speaking about this area of law, and that's why we undertook this project to update uh, the commentaries. So here you have a map uh, with the, the presence of our delegations around the world, mostly in uh, countries affected by armed conflict. And this is this famous uh, Red Cross and Red Crescent movement uh, that is quite complicated, but nevertheless also quite simple, with on the one hand side the ICRC, so where I work, and then you have national societies which are independent from the ICRC, which are not like local chapters of the ICRC, but which are independent organizations with their own structure and their own fundraising and everything. And so you have national Red Cross and Red Crescent societies. For example, the British Red Cross is one of them. And all these national societies have formed a federation which has a secretariat and which confusingly, of course, is also in Geneva. So in Geneva, you have the federation and you have the international committee. The committee is, to make it simple, responsible for the victims of armed conflict, and the federation is working more in natural disasters, so hurricanes, flooding, etc. And so this is the movement, as you can see here, International Red Cross and Red Crescent Movement, with these three types of components. And every four years they meet with the states' parties to the Geneva Conventions, i.e. all states, in what is called the International Conference of the Red Cross and Red Crescent, where they adopt resolutions to set uh, policy orientations for work in the next four years um, for the ICRC or for the Federation or for national societies. So that's in a nutshell uh, the movement for you and that's just to locate where I am working. And so I'm working in the ICRC which has this mandate to work for the protection and for assistance 
for victims of armed conflict, but also the law protecting them, which is international humanitarian law. So now let's go to the Geneva Conventions, and also I don't know everyone's knowledge here, so just a very brief overview of the conventions. GC1, as we call it, is for the uh, protection of wounded and sick of armies in the field. There's a second convention uh, dealing with the same topic, but uh, for law lawfare at sea, so wounded, sick, and shipwrecked. The third convention deals with the protection of prisoners of war. The fourth convention deals with the protection of civilians. And then importantly, in 1977, uh, two additional protocols were adopted. Protocol 1 dealing exclusively with international conflicts and Protocol 2 with non-international conflicts. There's also a Protocol 3, but the project to update the commentaries does not deal with Protocol 3 because that is more recent. It's from 2005. It introduced a new distinctive emblem of the red crystal in addition to the red cross and the red crescent. And so uh, the, the justification that we have for updating uh, the commentaries does not exist for uh, this third protocol. There is a commentary and it's still recent and it's still valid, so to speak. But for the uh, Geneva Conventions and the protocols, of course, the justification to update the commentary exists very much because if you look at the publication of the initial commentaries, you will see that uh, the commentary that we have just released on the first Geneva Convention was published in 1952, and that's, of course, more than 60 years ago. And, of course, a lot has changed and, and a lot has happened uh, in terms of practice, in terms of case law, in terms of military manuals, pronouncements, uh, in terms of the development of international generally, um, even just thinking about the, the interpretive method that we apply, which is the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, was adopted 20 years after the Geneva Conventions, so uh, the draft articles on state responsibility and so on and so forth. Uh, there are actually a lot of uh, sources that, that uh, didn't exist when the Geneva Conventions were adopted, or if you think about human rights law, the covenants and so on, these sources didn't exist. And so the drafters of the commentaries could not take them into account. Of course, also the case law, uh, in particular since the establishment of the ICTY, the ICTR, and now also the ICC, of course, has, has meant that uh, various concepts of IHL and of the Geneva Conventions have been... Uh, subject to much greater uh, detail and fleshing out, if you like, uh, that we had to reflect in this new commentary. It wasn't reflected in the original one. Uh, just a few words on the process of this update, uh, not too long. So, of course, the process starts with research, and I don't have to explain that here. We're all in this field uh, of doing research and, of course, to reflect this uh, subsequent practice that we're looking for to update the commentaries. Uh, and authors preparing and reviewing drafts is also not something new, except, of course, that in this project, all authors review each other's drafts, which is quite different from your regular edited book, where only the editors review all the drafts. And this is meant to ensure greater coherence, because among the authors, we also have non-ICRC contributors. Uh, for the first Geneva Convention, for example, we had some 10 external contributors alongside ICRC uh, lawyers. And so all of them received the, the, the drafts and were allowed and were invited to comment on the drafts. And this generally worked very well. They, they did comment on the drafts. But then we have the editorial committee, which is sort of the supreme body, if you like, that decides on what finally goes into the commentary or not, uh, which uh, consists also of two internal and two external members. So at this level also, there is external involvement. The editorial committee for the first commentary consisted of the director for law of policy and uh, the head of the legal division, 
uh, some of you may know these people, but then the two external members were uh, Professor Marco Sassoli and Professor Lisbeth Lenzaert, who is the legal advisor of the Netherlands. And then another step of review is a peer review by IHL practitioners and scholars from around the world. So already at this level, you can see that this commentary, contrary to the PICTE commentary, of course, was, was exposed to much greater external uh, input than, than the initial commentary. The initial commentary was simply written at the ICRC, and that was it. So now, of course, we have uh, invited external authors. We have external members in the editorial committee. And we have this peer review process, which for GC1, the first convention involved 60 people from around the world. So it was a heavy and long process. But I think at the end of the day, it was worthwhile because it allowed us also to capture uh, different points of views and also diverging views. And I'm mentioning this because this is also a difference with the initial commentary is that the, the new commentary also reflects uh, diverging views where they have been brought to our attention or where we are aware of them. So it does not simply give the ICRC interpretation and to say this is the uh, one and only interpretation. It also reflects uh, diverging points of view. So this is different uh, from the PK commentary. And after the peer review feedback comes in, we uh, incorporate all of that and we go back to the editorial committee where we discuss what we call the sticky points. And so after that, we can publish the commentaries. And so this whole process for the first commentary uh, took us uh, since 2011. And so we put it online last March. And then from March till uh, December, it still took uh, all this time to produce this book. Because you know, publishing books takes time. <laughs> So this is our new uh, time schedule for, uh, this is the time schedule for the publication of the updated commentaries. And of course it's a lengthy process. We started in 2011 and the first commentary took uh, like five or six years. Of course it was the hardest one because this had never been done before. And also because it included from the start the common articles on which I will speak in a minute. So let's uh, speak a little bit about the interpretive method. Obviously, we followed the recipe or the methodology set out in the Vienna Convention Law of Treaties, uh, which again is, is not uh, new for you. We, but it was useful for us, of course, when we got to a point where, you know, where it was doubtful which interpretation to follow, that we always fell back and were able to fall back on this, uh, on these concepts of the Vienna Convention Law of Treaties. So to interpret in good faith based on the ordinary meaning of the text in their context and in light of the object and purpose which also meant that we had to make sure that everyone was using the same object and purpose and so we set out in the introduction the, the methodology and we also set out in the, in the introduction what we think is the object and purpose because otherwise if you edit a book consisting of 64 chapters with uh, 10 external authors you may have different objects and purposes of course and it wouldn't uh, be coherent so the idea is to, to have a coherent commentary. But then, very importantly, taking into account subsequent practice and other relevant rules of international law, and I think this is where we come to the essence of what this new commentary brings uh, to the field, is to capture this subsequent practice. This is really what is new, and also these other relevant rules of international law that have developed uh, over the over the past six years, so these are other treaties uh, in particular, be they uh, treaties of general international law like the Vienna Convention itself 
or documents like the draft rules on state responsibility or um, treaties of human rights law, for example, that could have an impact or international criminal law or um, international refugee law. Now, you may know that on subsequent practice, there is a working group and there is a report uh, being prepared in the International Law Commission. So we're following this very closely. And the special rapporteur, Georg Nolte, we have consulted him as well to make sure that, that in the introduction and in our methodology, we, we carefully reflect and correctly reflect uh, the work of the International Law Commission. Because there is a nuance in the Vienna Convention between Articles 31 and 32 on the way subsequent practice works. Uh, where you find the term subsequent practice in Article 31, it says subsequent practice showing the agreement by all the parties about the interpretation, and that you hardly find in actual uh, practice, um, specifically for the Geneva Conventions, because there is no meeting of states' parties. So, so if a state gives a certain interpretation, it's very difficult to be able to establish that that interpretation actually reflects the agreement of all the parties about the interpretation. But subsequent practice also comes in at the level of Article 2 as a subsidiary means of interpretation or a supplementary means of interpretation. And there the rules are less strict. And of course, that's uh, a lot of the material that we have is of that nature. Then there is, as I mentioned before, all the case law that has very usefully uh, developed and uh, fleshed out a, a number of concepts, uh, in particular the ICTY. To begin with, the concept of armed conflict itself, which weren't clearly defined uh, in the 1950s up till the 1990s, basically. And a host of subjects and concepts and uh, uh, rules such as the prohibition of torture, cruel treatment, inhuman treatment, which were not clearly and properly defined before. And in the PT commentaries it was said, they don't need to be defined, everyone knows what they are when you see it. But of course, then we know what happened in history and that it is useful to nevertheless have a definition that clearly sets the limits of these acts. So the ICTY in many cases has provided these definitions and we've been able to, to reflect on this. Vienna Convention also says that the special meaning can be given to terms if that was the intention of the drafters. And then as another uh, supplementary means of interpretation, there is the preparatory work. Um, which English lawyers like to refer to as travaux préparatoires, <laughs> even though the Vienna Convention, the Vienna Convention says preparatory work. <laughs> and we have systematically gone back to this uh, preparatory work to also, of course, familiarize ourselves with the negotiations and also to understand the context uh, of the adoption of the various provisions. So we've not simply blindly taken over what was written in the PICTE commentaries about the preparatory work, but we have gone back uh, to the 1949 diplomatic conference, to the 1948 Stockholm conference of the Red Cross, where the draft that the ICRC had prepared was discussed, to the 1947 conference of government experts, and to the 1946 uh, preparatory conference of Red Cross and Red Crescent Society. So there was a, there's a very good record, a historic record of the development of the Geneva Conventions which is, is quite amazing. And we also discovered in this process that there were actually written notes uh, or more, um, I forget the word now, but it's more the, the, the actual transcriptions of the discussion. The, so the, uh, 
the preparatory work itself, the official records of the Geneva Convention of 1949 is a summary of the discussions. And they're also what is called stenographic notes. Yeah, that's the word I was looking for. Stenographic notes that more reflect the actual debates. So the verbatim records, yes, that, that we discovered existed and existed only in the ICRC library. And so as a result of this project, this has also been scanned now and is available on the website of our library for consultation from anywhere in the world. So that's a little side effect and side benefit of this project that these um, stenographic notes have now also been made available. So that about the interpretive method, maybe now I'll just speak a little bit about the content and outcome and then I'll try to leave half an hour for uh, questions and answer. So the common articles, of course, um, well, I'll give an overview of all of GC1 and come back to the common articles. But the first three are the most uh, known to everyone. Common Article 1 deals with the obligation to respect and ensure respect. Common Article 2 sets out the scope of application in case of international armed conflict, including occupation. Common Article 3 sets out the scope of application for non-international conflict, including the substance of the rules that apply to these NIACs, as we call them now. But there are also common articles at the end, of course, and, and in this commentary we have also commented on them. Uh, they deal with issues such as reprisals, the obligation to disseminate the content of the Geneva Conventions and to teach armed forces, uh, the regulation of grave breaches, which are a type of war crimes, for which there exists an obligation in the Geneva Conventions to, to prosecute, to search and prosecute. And also an inquiry procedure, and I mentioned this because it's an example of a provision that has not been applied. So there has been a lot of practice and subsequent practice to update the commentaries, but on occasion there have also been issues that have not been the subject of much practice. The inquiry procedure as such has never been applied. Of course, inquiries have happened, but they followed their own specific methods, not the methods set out in the Geneva Conventions. And other subjects, such as the issue of protecting powers, have been applied up to a certain extent in the past, but haven't been applied in the past uh, three, four decades. So they too have been a subject of, of little and less practice. But the vast majority of provisions of the first Geneva Convention, even though dates from the 1949, are still very relevant today and, and still have a lot of practice that we could report on and reflect on and interpretation that we could update so outside of these common articles, the specificity of the First Geneva Convention is on the care for wounded and sick, and it deals with uh, issues such as the protection of wounded and sick, uh, no surprise. But related there to the protection of medical personnel, protection of medical units, protection of medical transports, all of these are you know, to serve the wounded and sick, which is the one of the uh, main objects and purposes of the First Geneva Convention. And in relation there to also the protection of the emblem, which is the Red Cross and Red Crescent. And now since 2005, also the Red Crystal. Yes, I haven't mentioned this. This is also an example of, a, of another relevant rule of international law, which is the adoption of the Third Protocol, which of course didn't exist in 1949. Uh, but which means that now the three emblems uh, are seen as equal in terms of legal status. So the Red Cross, the Red Crescent, and the Red Crystal each have the, the same value, the same legal protection. And that is uh, specifically stated in this third protocol of 2005. 
The first Geneva Convention also interestingly already deals with the treatment of the dead, so the obligation of honorable interment and also the obligation to identify them prior to burials so that people do not go missing. And this is another topic already addressed in the first Geneva Convention. Of course, it comes back later also in the fourth Geneva Convention for civilians, and it comes back later in the additional protocols. Um, but it is already in the first Geneva Convention, uh, which makes me uh, think and say that I think this first Geneva Convention still is one of the foundational texts of international humanitarian law, containing a lot of uh, important issues and topics. So let's look at common articles 1, 2, and 3 now in a bit more detail for the remaining 17 minutes or so, 18 minutes. So this is common article 1. The high contracting parties undertake to respect and to ensure respect for the present convention in all circumstances. So it's a beautifully terse sentence which is extremely powerful, uh, crisp, and has a lot of potential. And of course that potential has, uh, has emerged over the past six decades in the sense that it is now seen as reflecting an obligation also to ensure respect by others, because the article doesn't say exactly whose respect is to be ensured. Uh, but since the Pictet commentary of 1952, he had already stated that it is an obligation of all parties to the conflict, of all parties, all high contracting parties, yes, it's not parties to the conflict, all high contracting parties have to ensure respect for the present convention in all circumstances. We'll come back to that in a minute. So I won't speak much about the internal dimension of this obligation. This is to respect and ensure respect for the convention yourself, which is quite obvious. This is the uh, obligation of Pacta Sunt Servanda and so does not add much uh, to the existing international legal landscape, so to speak. You could say ensuring respect adds a little bit because it gives the uh, conveys the message that you not only have to respect but also take measures to make sure that the conventions are respected by training your armed forces, by informing your civilian population. So a few examples, uh, by adopting legislation, regulations, rules of application and of course by prosecuting breaches, by imposing disciplinary sanctions and so on. So this is part of the internal dimension, ensuring respect by your own troops. But the more interesting and controversial aspect of Common Article 301 is the external uh, dimension, which is to ensure respect by other states and non-state armed groups, even in conflicts to which one is not a party. And this, in turn, has two aspects as well. One is the negative aspect, which goes back to the uh, Nicaragua decision of the ICJ, is to the obligation not to encourage violations by others. And now based on draft articles on state responsibility, article 16 also, the obligation or the prohibition not to provide aid or assistance to others for committing violations. And this of course is very topical these days, also in relation to issues very practical, uh, such as arms sales to Saudi Arabia, for example. The positive aspect of common article one is that states have an obligation to take steps to bring violations to an end and so this becomes more controversial because states say, how can we do this? We cannot police all states and all armed groups to make sure they do not commit any violations anywhere. And if they do, what can we do? You know, we cannot be everywhere at the same time. And, and what influence do we have? And of course, this obligation to take steps to bring violations to an end is subject to due diligence. So it's not an obligation of result. It's an obligation of means. 
Uh, it depends on issues such as the gravity of the violations, the knowledge of the violations, of course, which are related. The graver the violations, probably the, more the knowledge is higher. But also the available means and the level of influence over the parties concerned. Here, too, the ICJ gave some helpful guidance in the uh, genocide case where they dealt with similar issues on the prevention of genocide and the obligation to prevent genocide, which it also said was subject to due diligence. You cannot guarantee that it, that it wouldn't happen, but you had to apply due diligence and do whatever was feasible in your power, what is reasonable, the reasonable means. So for many states, it means that in many cases, they can't do anything because they don't have much influence or they may not know about the violations. For other states, it, for many states, it will mean that they have to work through international organizations because that's the only place really their voice can be heard. It depends, of course, if they're a member of the Security Council, non-permanent member. At that time, they could do more than if they're not a member of the Security Council and so on and so forth. So a few examples of measures that are given uh, also in the commentary are obviously diplomatic dialogue and even protest bring the issue before the UN, Security Council, General Assembly, or ICJ. The Security Council can adopt sanctions, for example. Other measures to put pressure include to stop trade negotiations or the non-renewal of trade benefits or stop uh, aid that is provided to another state. Put conditions, limit, suspend, or stop armed trade. And in the case of coalition partners, we argue that, of course, there you have a higher level of influence. So it is more based on this uh, criteria of due diligence. You have more uh, influence, so you should and could do more to intervene with them in case violations are happening. So this is Common Article 1. As I said, since 1952, the Pictet Commentary set forth this obligation by all states, uh, this obligation to ensure respect by others, subject, of course, to due diligence. But this is not accepted by everyone. In the peer review comments we received, in particular uh, from our, the Canadian legal advisors, and also in a speech last year by the US legal advisor Brian Egan at the ASIL meeting, he said that the US does not consider this obligation as a legal obligation, but as a matter of policy, the US would take these kinds of measures, which I think at the end of the day, legal obligation, due diligence, or doing everything feasible as a matter of policy, we actually come very close, but one might still disagree, of course, whether it's a legal obligation or not. We argue that it is a legal obligation because it is based on Common Article 1, it's based on the interpretation of Common Article 1, and it's based also on the subsequent practice. I mean, it's not just based on the text itself, but it has been applied in this way by the Security Council, by meetings of states parties to the Geneva Conventions and so on, and, and you'll find the references uh, in the commentary. On the other hand, of course, you could say, yes, but there are many instances where nothing has been done, and those prove that states do not see it as a legal obligation. So uh, uh, reasonable people can disagree on this, uh, and that's where we also reflect these diverging views, as I said. We reflect and we acknowledge that not everyone agrees with this interpretation. Now, let's go to Articles 2 and 3. Uh, as you know, Article 2 deals with uh, international conflicts, and sets out the scope of uh, application of the Geneva Conventions in international conflict, does not contain the substantive rules, and Article 3 uh, is the article dealing with non-international conflicts. 
And falling below the level of non-international armed conflicts, you have internal disturbances and tensions where IHL does not apply. So I'll be very short about Article 2 and then a bit longer about Article 3. And, and basically giving you an overview of Article 3 because the commentary on common Article 3, as you can imagine, has expanded uh, immensely. It was 23 pages or so in the PICTE commentary. It's now 150 pages uh, because this is really since 1949. The main development, if you look practically speaking uh, in terms of subsequent developments, is the uh, um, expansion of the number of non-international conflicts and the fact that the majority of conflicts are uh, governed by common Article 3, not common Article 2. Fortunately, there are not so many international conflicts anymore. But on the other hand, there are a lot of non-international conflicts. And all of them are governed by common Article 3 because no matter where they happen in the world, all states are party to the Geneva Conventions and so are bound by common Article 3. So there has been a lot of uh, interpretation on that article. So Article 2 deals with uh, international armed conflict um, and the commentary highlights that these are conflicts, armed conflict between states. And it continues to follow the what is called the PICTE approach of the first shot approach so that as soon as there is armed violence between uh, agents of the state there is an armed conflict. Um, one issue that has raised uh, concern for this commentary, and I'll just mention it, is that it also says that the intervention in another state against a non-state armed group, but without the consent of that state, uh, would also lead to the existence of an armed conflict between that state, the two states. And another question which is addressed, uh, and so sorry, just to come back to that. And so, of course, people question whether that issue of consent is relevant in this context. Another question which is raised in the new commentary is whether cyber attacks uh, by themselves can constitute an international conflict. And so it reflects the agreement that uh, exists that these types of attacks, if they have kinetic effects like traditional armed conflicts, could indeed constitute an armed conflict or trigger the existence of an armed conflict. Whereas for cyber attacks that do not have these types of uh, kinetic effects, destruction and so on, that we don't know yet. And so I'm also mentioning this to give you an example of where the commentary says that state practice hasn't properly addressed this question and we don't want to say yes it is an armed conflict or no it isn't because it is still too early to tell so to speak. Coming now to non-international armed conflict, I'll just go over the text with you and then highlight some of the issues uh, in the remaining uh, eight or ten minutes. Uh, and then we can open up to questions. So Article 3 uh, deals with non-international armed conflict and sets out the scope of application, but that's really a very big word because it doesn't say very much at all. It just says, in the case of an armed conflict, not of an international character. <laughs> So Article 2 says this is an international armed conflict between states, and now it says in the case of an armed conflict not of an international character, occurring in the territory of one of the high contracting parties, each party shall uh, be bound to apply as a minimum the following provisions. Of course, today we would never be able to adopt this text anymore, because each party, and party with a capital P, would not at all be 
uh, agreed upon between states. This means each, all of the parties in a non-international conflict, both the state but also the non-state armed groups, are bound by these rules, which is extremely uh, helpful, powerful, and useful in our daily work to be able to rely on this. And so uh, it's not further defined than this, and of course, as, as you all know, there's a, a lot of case law on this, particular of the ICTY, which has uh, defined the concept of non-international con conflict based on the quality and the organization of the parties and also the intensity of the violence. And then we also address whether duration is a separate criteria, and we conclude that it is not, it is part of the intensity. And then we also address the question whether the motivation, whether it has to be a political motivation or whether an economic motivation of, of pillage or self-enrichment, uh, whether those types of uh, conflicts could also be non-international conflict. And we conclude that those that that is not an additional criteria. So we, we, we stick to the two criteria that very clearly and usefully have been developed by the ICTY, namely the quality of the parties, the organization, and the intensity of the violence. Other issues in the new commentary, uh, not surprisingly, and uh, Dapora Kande here uh, knows more about these than I do actually, is about the geographic scope of application. Um, where, of course, the question has arisen recently, uh, in recent decades, to what extent, you know, how far does uh, IHL extend uh, in an internal non-international conflict? I mean, and there are two questions. One is, two types of questions. One is, where does IHL apply? But also, in the first place, when there is a non-international conflict, where in the territory of the state does IHL apply? And there, again, the ICTY has confirmed uh, I believe in the context of the conflicts in the former Yugoslavia, that, that once uh, IHL applies in the territory of a state, then it applies everywhere. But this, of course, still uh, is subject to the acts having a nexus to the armed conflict. And this issue of nexus is something that hasn't been explored very much yet, but one of our uh, former colleagues is, is now writing a doctorate on this, uh, under the supervision of Marcus Sosely on this whole issue of the nexus issue. So internal NIACs are the traditional civil wars, if you like, uh, between the state and rebel groups or among rebel groups. But then you also have these so-called spillover NIACs, so where the parties are fighting but then fight into another territory. And these have also been recognized as non-international conflict. And there again, you then have the question to what extent and how far does the spillover actually extend into that other state? Is it limited to the zone of conflict? which you cannot delimit, or is it applicable in the whole of the territory? And then again, I guess you have to fall back on the issue of nexus. And another question raised in this context, all of this addressed in the commentary, of course, is whether the, in the spillover territory, whether that conflict again has to meet the threshold criteria of intensity to constitute a NIAC. So as you can see, there are a lot of issues here. It's a very uh, an area of IHL that has greatly expanded and developed. Cross-border NIAC, where a state is fighting an armed group which is, is based abroad, as was the case with Israel and Hezbollah. And finally, transnational NIAC, where, uh, or a global NIAC, where a state would be fighting an armed group that, is, that has no geographic attachment and where we conclude that support for this type of NIAC is, is limited still, and um, the ICRC has, has not been in favor of it. 
Other issues uh, that we address are the involvement of foreign troops. So that's the situation, for example, in Afghanistan. So foreign troops come to the assistance of a state fighting armed groups. And also the involvement of peacekeeping forces. So can peacekeeping forces become parties to an armed conflict? And there our interpretation has always been that the same criteria apply and that yes, it's not because it's called peacekeeping forces that they could not become parties to an armed conflict. And another final issue, which is quite uh, touchy and, and complicated and complex, is the end of non-international conflict. So until now we've talked about the beginning and what constitutes non-international conflict, but there is also a whole question about when does a non-international conflict end, since you have these criteria of intensity and organization. What if the intensity drops? Is it at the end of the non-international conflict? Uh, and there our interpretation has been that no, it's not because it, it drops, because otherwise you could have a revolving door of armed conflict uh, for a couple of weeks and then no armed conflict and then armed conflict again and the status of persons and uh, uh, the protection of persons and the applicable rules would constantly shift. So to come to the end of the armed conflict, uh, there's, there's a whole section on that in the commentary uh, building on the ICT, on the ICJ, uh, sorry, excuse me, ICTY case law, but also adding some helpful uh, further clarifications, I think. I have to move on because there is a lot in common Article 3 and we've only talked about <laughs> the scope of application. Um, who is protected? And if you just read this, then you can imagine that there's a lot of material in common Article 3. Each word has a meaning and has, has been subject to debate and, 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 and publications and clarifications. So persons taking no active part in the hostilities, including members of armed forces who've laid down their arms and those placed out of combat by sickness wounds, detention, or any other cause. What protection is provided? There is these uh, two fundamental protections, which is humane treatment and the prohibition of adverse distinction, both of which, of course, are addressed in the new commentary. Then you have the specific protections, all of which have been subject to great clarification, um, in particular by the case law of international criminal tribunals, one has to say. So the first one is the prohibition of violence to life and person, in particular murder, mutilation, cruel treatment and torture, the taking of hostages, and in this context we've also relied on the case law of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, for example, to give another example, which has had to deal with this in a, in a case dealing with uh, the taking of hostages of peacekeeping forces. Outrages upon personal dignity, in particular humiliating and degrading treatment, and finally, the passing of sentences and the carrying out of executions without previous judgment pronounced by a regularly constituted court affording all the judicial guarantees which are recognized as indispensable by civilized pe peoples. So a very long sentence. And this raises a whole issue whether armed groups can actually constitute these courts and can actually dispense this kind of, uh, of justice, so to speak. We've also... Uh, included some new sections in the commentary on common article 3 which I call here implicit protections so uh, subjects which are not specifically mentioned but which based on the practice of the past decades have come to be recognized as being prohibited under common article 3 this is sexual violence including rape which otherwise would only come up in article 27 of the fourth Geneva Convention and wouldn't even be mentioned in the context of non-international conflict until protocol 2 but so now we uh, have included this in uh, Common Article 3. Uh, 
I mean, we have included, we have not invented anything, but it, it, it is reflective of the developments in law and practice that this uh, act is a violation of common article 3. And also the prohibition of, or the rule of non-refoulement, so the prohibition of sending back people or handing over people to another party, to countries or another party, where they are at risk of murder or torture or other violations of common article 3. So this is an example of uh, implicit protections. Then on the wounded and sick, which is the main topic of GC1 for international conflict, Common Article 3 is extremely short. The first bullet is the actual text of Common Article 3. The wounded and sick must be collected and cared for. That's all it says. So here, too, we have a whole section, and it's even titled Implicit Protection. So we recognize that it is not mentioned, but based on developments, including Protocol 2, as well as customary international law, and it's the first time I mention it, but that's, of course, another relevant source under the Vienna Convention, uh, Article 31, in terms of subsequent practice, subsequent developments, and other relevant rules. There's also customary international law. So we have also included uh, the protection of medical personnel, medical units, and medical transports, without which the wounded and sick simply cannot be collected and cannot be cared for, as well as the protection of the emblems. Then further, Common Article 3, so mind you, it is a mini-convention, uh, and it is indeed a mini-convention, says an impartial humanitarian body such as the ICRC may offer its services to the parties to the conflict. So this section of Common Article 3 uh, addresses what does this mean, assistance and protection. It goes into the issue of the, whether the consent of the state is, is required, which was recently in Syria uh, a debate. And it goes beyond the PICTEC commentary because now we set forth the interpretation that arbitrary refusal of consent is prohibited. So the PICTEC commentary said in 1952, you can offer your services and the state can accept or refuse at will. They don't need to give reasons. So it could be an arbitrary refusal. Today, based on practice and law and the developments uh, that we have seen, including in customary law, we say that states may not arbitrarily refuse consent. We're almost at the end. Common Article 3 then says, the parties to the conflict should further endeavor to bring into force by means of special agreements all or part of the other provisions of the present convention. You know that Common Article 3 was subject of the longest discussions in 1949 between those that wanted to make all of the Geneva Conventions applicable to non-international conflicts and those that wanted to have only a minimum number of rules but uh, applicable to the widest types of non-international conflict. And so in the end, it was the second option that was chosen. So a minimum number of rules applicable to the widest uh, category of non-international conflicts, widely defined. But therefore, of course, also uh, this special uh, rec um, recommendation that special agreements should be concluded to further elaborate on the law that would apply to the parties. Such special agreements have been concluded, for example, in the former Yugoslavia. There are a number of uh, very well-known special agreements. And these special agreements, the scope of these special agreements can also include other rules, not only the rules of the conventions, not only rules of IHL, but can also include rules of human rights law or refugee law, for example. Examples of these types of special agreements exist, for example, in the Philippines. The commentary gives more examples and, and expands on 
on the nature of these special agreements, the question whether they constitute treaties or not, and so on and so forth. So it's a very rich uh, commentary. And finally, the application of the preceding provisions of Common Article 3 shall not affect the legal status of the parties to the conflict. And in this context, we address also the issue of IHL and terrorism. And so that the fact of labeling um, groups as terrorists does not affect their status under IHL. And of course, this final clause was essential to have what I highlighted in the first clause, namely that all the parties have to apply these rules that states would not have accepted, of course, that this common Article 3, by its adoption, would give some kind of status or recognition to uh, non-state armed groups. And this clause has been repeated in other conventions uh, which contain articles uh, dealing with non-international conflict. For example, the 1954 Hague Convention on the Protection of Cultural Property has the same clause in Article 19 dealing with uh, the application of the convention in case of non-international conflict. So I will uh, just conclude by highlighting uh, four uh, final points and then open up the floor. So the new commentary is an ICRC commentary like the PICTE commentary, but it results nevertheless from a collaborative process that involved many uh, external uh, contributors and, and views so as a result, of course, uh, we took the decision not only to indicate ICRC interpretations, but also uh, diverging views, main diverging views. We hope that this contributes to the clarification of the Geneva Conventions. It's not the final word. As you may know, there is also another commentary published by Oxford University Press, uh, edited by Marco Sassoli, Paula Gaeta, and Andrew Clapham, which is similarly a contribution to the clarification of the Geneva Conventions. And since our commentary was published afterwards, we were able to refer to them, uh, which was very uh, useful to check, of course, our commentary against theirs. Their commentary is one book dealing with the four conventions published by Oxford University Press. Our commentary is, is going to be one uh, per convention and providing commentary on each provision of the conventions. So we believe that these two commentaries are uh, are different and complementary. And as you know, Marco Sassoli is one of our external contributors and uh, editors, and he was also editor of the Oxford Handbook or the Oxford uh, Commentary. So that also shows that, that the, these two projects are complementary. And finally, of course, the ultimate authority of this commentary, like the Pictet commentary, which over the years became quite authoritative, but the ultimate authority of this commentary will depend on its quality. So we hope that we've done the right level and serious level of research, uh, the writing, the clarity of the writing and the argument, and also the consultations that we did. So with this, I thank you for your attention, and I look forward to your questions. Thank you. <laughs>